Is Keir Starmer's leadership about to end? Now, this is a question that more and more people are asking, seeing as it's becoming almost a consensus the guy isn't particularly good at his job. And as we've discussed on this show more than a few times, he's made a few too many enemies. Now, obviously, this is all in the context of these disastrous by-elections for the Labour Party. Now, of course, if he were to go, this would be an extraordinary development in British politics. Labour leaders normally last a little while. It's not a party known to to put the knife in and, and take leaders out if they don't think they're winners. They gave it a go with Corbyn. They failed. Will they have more luck this time around? I'll be discussing that with Ash Sarkar. How are you doing? I'm good. Although I took a nap this afternoon and I woke up and it was like October, like it's freezing and raining and I'm not happy. We will also be talking about whether or not double vaxxed people should get more freedoms. That's especially with reference to self-isolation and travel. And we've got a couple more Labour stories to boot. I'm not going to give those away just yet, but definitely worth waiting for. First story. The bad news keeps on coming for Keir Starmer. In the Cheshman Amersham by-election, the party secured only 622 votes. That's the worst tally for either of the two major parties since 1918. Really phenomenal statistic. Now, since then, the first poll has been released for the Batley and Spen by-election. Now, that suggests Labour is set to lose. Again, this time they'll be losing um, the seat. Now, the results from this poll are that the Conservatives are on 47%, which would be 11 points higher than they achieved in 2019. And Labour would be on 41%, which would be down to from that election. George Galloway's on 6% and the Lib Dems on 3 Now, were that to happen, were Labour to lose the Batley and Spen by-election, it would be the first time the governing party had gained seats in two separate by-elections since in the same parliament, sorry, since at least 1950. Now, that's as far back as Wikipedia goes. I've been asking on Twitter, and apparently it does go back a a fair bit further than that. This is very, very unusual. For governing parties to win two in the same parliament, two in the same year, is almost unheard of. Now, this grim sequence of events likely explains why this weekend we've witnessed a series of changes in Starmer's top team. Both the Director of Communications, Ben Nunn, and his deputy have resigned. And Starmer's Chief of Staff, Morgan McSweeney, has been moved into a different role. So there's clearly trouble at the top of the team. They recognise that something needs to change. Now, to me, this looks... These are are very small changes around the, the edges. Shuffling chairs on the Titanic is the image it gives me. We're also seeing headlines like this at the moment. So Adam Biankov in Business Insider asked, is Keir Starmer's time as Labour leader about to come to an early end? Now, that article included quotes from unnamed MPs from different wings of the Labour Party. An MP from the left of the party told Biankov, I think with Batley and Spen so close, none of those interested in challenging Starmer want to risk being left open to the attack they cost us the seat by coming out of the traps first. After Batley and Spen, that won't apply. They spoke to another MP who was critical of Starmer. They told the paper, you get the impression that Keir doesn't want the job anymore. It's possible the communications team's departures are a presage of that. Why carry on busting your balls when you know your boss has lost his mojo and is unlikely to be PM? In the event of a leadership challenge, I'm not even sure Keir would contest it. 
Now, those are MPs from the left and an MP who is known to be critical of Starmer. There was a Starmerite MP who spoke to the paper um, who was calling for unity. So they said people should grow up and focus on building a winning coalition. Now, of course, that's not a particularly um, forthcoming defence of Keir Starmer, rather just a generic call for unity. Those MPs, of course, have all remained unnamed. I do want to look at a comment this morning from an MP who um, is speaking publicly. This was Emily Formbury speaking to Sky. Give him a chance. Let's see the end How of the pandemic. We, we need to get out of the pandemic and then he needs to have his chance, right? He needs to have his chance to show who he is and to show his mettle. And what if you're in the by-election? It's a, it's a by-election. We will move on. We will, we will move on from that. You know, he needs to be able to be given his chance and people need to hear him and meet him and know who he is and know that he is so much a better potential prime minister than the one that we have at the moment. Damning in a sense, it was such faint praise. He would make a better prime minister than the current one. Now that's very, very different from saying he'd be a good prime minister. Just to say he's better than Boris Johnson. Now as a Labour frontbencher, that's, you're holding the bar very, very low. If all you can say about the leader, and you're in the shadow cabinet, by the way. This isn't a, you know, a, a backbencher who's who's always you know hated Keir Starmer or whatever. This is someone who's in the shadow cabinet, supposed to be speaking for the opposition, and she's saying, well, he'd be a better prime minister than Boris Johnson. Now, Ash, the reason um, we're talking about the positions of MPs, what MPs from different wings of the party think about Keir Starmer, is because for there to be a challenge to his leadership, the only people who have control over that would be the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party. If he doesn't want to resign, which I think is I, I think it's unlikely to resign because the right want to keep him in post until they can change a few more rules, then you'll need 40 MPs to support a challenger. So it really matters um, whether or not there is enough disquiet in the Parliamentary Labour Party. Do you think that if they lose Batley and Spen, we could see the kind of unstoppable momentum that could unseat Keir Starmer after only a year and a half? I mean, so I think that it's obvious that Keir Starmer would be a disastrous candidate to take into the next general election. I hear what Emily Thornbury is saying of, well, we've been in a pandemic. He's not had the opportunity to show who he is. But if you're not good in a crisis, that is showing something of who you are as a politician. Secondly, we don't know that the pandemic won't continue to shape our politics for a few more years to come, perhaps going in and out of lockdowns or having to adjust border policies in response to what's going on elsewhere. All right. It's not necessarily the case, although I hope it would be, that you get to July 19th and suddenly everything's fine. That's not but you know nailed on so i think that you know she knows that she's just trying to say something appropriately uh nice without you know going overboard and uh isolating herself if it is time for a coup um she's just doing the job that i think any shadow cabinet minister would do so it would be disastrous to put keir starmer in in post uh until the next general election however you only really have leadership challenge mounted when there's some kind of plausible other candidate. Right now, you've got Andy Burnham, who looks, uh, you know, somewhat prime ministerial and compelling and charismatic, great name recognition. You've got Angela Rayner, of course, but she's also been doing her best to uh, alienate her party's left recently with some kind of unforced errors regarding Jeremy Corbyn and so-called photo bombing. Um, so in terms of who was the obvious candidate, well, 
there isn't necessarily one. And thirdly, you've got the question of, well, who would want to take Labour into the next general election? Because it's very rare that you've got a candidate putting themselves forward going, you know what, I am just going to be a kind of interim opposition leader until the next person comes along. And they are a viable prime ministerial candidate. So I think that you've got all these other considerations in which you might end up with the PLP saying, well, it's better to keep this hopeless guy in post than take his job now. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people probably thinking that. Um, let's get up one more set of responses from Batley and Spencer. This is from the same observation poll that we sort of started um, the segment with. They asked constituents, in your view, which of the following political leaders do you trust the most on the following issues? So you've got Brexit. 57% of people say Boris Johnson, only 17% say Keir Starmer, and then the rest are obviously neither or don't know. When it comes to COVID-19, 55% um, trust Boris Johnson, 21% Keir Starmer. With the economy, 55% Boris Johnson, only 21% Keir Starmer. And even with the NHS, 45% trust Boris Johnson and only 30% trust Keir Starmer. Now remember, this is in a seat that Labour held in the 2019 general election. So those are pretty poor results. And what people always say, look, Corbyn also polled terribly for much of the time that he was leader. Now, as we've talked about on previous shows, in fact, Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn are actually polling almost exactly the same um, at the same period in time. What's different about Keir Starmer is that well, he hasn't been subject to any smear campaign, so it's quite difficult to see how when there's, you know, even reporting in the press, there could be some turnaround because people are seeing the real Keir Starmer, I think, and they just don't really like what they see. It's not that they've been blinded by a smear campaign because where are the smears? I haven't seen them. You know, even Keir Starmer's people aren't saying, oh, no, they've been distracted by all of these lies told about him. I, I can't think of any of the lies that have really been told about him. There was one article about a donkey farm, wasn't there? I don't think that's affecting um, everyone's attitudes in this particular poll. So it's difficult to see how he will turn it around. If anything as well, Ash, you know, as we saw Emily Formbury there saying that we can't expect people to have formed opinions about Keir Starmer because we've been in, in the middle of a crisis. Now, I would say in response to that, actually, isn't it precisely in a crisis where you would make up your mind about a potential leader? You know, because thinking about it, yeah, who do you want to be your leader? One of the main things you want them to be able to do is to be good in a crisis, is to have astute um, thoughts and sort of the capacity to make tough decisions in tough circumstances, not just sort of step back and make some abstract policy proposal. I mean, he hasn't done that either. But this idea that suddenly once, once COVID has gone, as you suggest, it might never be gone, he's going to be able to speak to people and show people what he's about. I don't see it happening unless you think that maybe now he's got rid of his director of communications, there could be some sort of turnaround incoming. Labour loves a kind of symbolic sacrifice to prove that they're taking issues seriously while ultimately uh, preserving the arrangement of leadership. So I'm not sure uh, how much the departures of Ben Nunn and Morgan McSweeney are going to do for changing the fundamental problems uh, with the leadership, because it's not so much one of communication. Of course, the communication has been dire. It is that void at the heart of the project. No ideas, no vision. And it's politics by aesthetics. Look sensible. 
look prime ministerial, i.e. wear a suit that's not rumpled, and then hope that people are into it. And that's just not where politics is at the moment. And Michael, I'm not just saying this because like, you know, I'm blowing smoke up your ass and I like coming on this show, but you have been a more effective leader of the opposition over the course of the pandemic than Keir Starmer has. When it comes to holding the government to account, putting out the points that really need to be said and developing a critical narrative, that's the kind of work you've been doing. Whereas what is it that Keir Starmer's been saying? One, we will support the government, right? So doing this whole weird government of national unity by any other name spiel didn't really do that much for him. Two, talking about the government's vaccine bounce. And again, giving all the credit to Boris Johnson, you know, not so much to the NHS and doing the Tories comms work for them by going, you know, they've really played a blinder with this vaccine. And then three, he's been going around the country, as I've said before, just talking about how shit he and his party is. And I think we were talking about it earlier this morning in our editorial meeting, Michael, you said people like a winner or they like a trier. And Keir Starmer comes across as neither. He looks like somebody who cannot decide whether he is playing, uh, you know, a head of government in an Aaron Sorkin drama, or his job is to go around telling everybody how bad the party he stands for is, right? He's torn between these two things. Neither of them are anything to vote for. It's a bit like if I started Tisky Sour every day by saying, look, guys, I apologize. I've got a bit of a boring hour lined up for you. We have been we've been trying to change the format because it's not really working. You know, I've been asking people for advice. Obviously, you know, my co-hosts, they're fine. But I mean, what are you going to do? You know, if I was you, I'd probably watch GB News. <laughs> if I said that at the start of every show, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I only had 10 people watching half an hour in. Now, that is Keir Starmer's <laughs> style. You don't need a comms director to tell you that's a bad idea. But you look at the way in which they're going into Batley and Spen, which I know we're going to talk about in more detail. Do they look like they're going into that by-election trying to win it, trying to hold on to that seat? Did they go into Hartlepool with the attitude of a party that really could win it? No, they're going into it making their excuses early. And it is so unattractive. The votes haven't even been cast yet. And you're already telling me why I didn't vote for you. A big problem for Labour in the upcoming Batley and Spen by-election is that many Muslims in the constituency think Keir Starmer has taken their votes for granted. Now, we know this from interviews on the ground, some of which we'll show you in one moment. We also know this from national polling of Muslims. Now, the following shows the attitudes of British Muslims towards Starmer and Labour. This is a poll done by Servation. Now, what you can see here is that while 61% of Muslims polled had a favourable attitude towards the Labour Party, so that's, that's very popular um, among Muslims, the Labour Party, Keir Starmer is quite the opposite. So 61% of Muslim voters have a favourable attitude towards the Labour Party. Only 22% of Muslim voters have a favourable attitude towards Keir Starmer. Now, when we go to unfavourable attitudes, 19% of Muslims have an unfavourable attitude towards the Labour Party. That goes up to 29% for Keir Starmer. So this isn't just a case of Labour being famous and Keir Starmer still being unknown. No, there's actually quite a lot of active hostility to Keir Starmer. More than half of people know who he is, and or more than half of Muslim voters already know who he is, and they don't seem to like what they see. Now, as I mentioned at the start, this negativity has also been visible to journalists interviewing Muslim constituents on the ground. These clips were featured in Owen Jones' mini-doc from Batley and Spen. White took the leader 
up till the Prime Minister's question last week to actually mention Palestine and do things. People are not happy. Um, to get them changed in the next two weeks, it's going to be tough. Yes, term, uh, I emailed him about this uh, Palestine and never got an email back. And he's not good for the public, he's not good for us. He doesn't support, the, uh, what, he doesn't hear our voices. Mr. We want Mr. Kirsterman oosted out because he's not a good politician. Do you think Keir Starmer will will fall? That oh, will be the end of his leadership. Come on, definitely. 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 That, 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 that's foregone conclusion. That's foregone conclusion. He has to go. Just quickly, how would you? Who would you like to? Just finally, who would you like to take over if Keir Starmer goes? Who? Burnham. Burnham. That voter wanted Burnham to replace Keir Starmer. Obviously, Andy Burnham is not going to be on the ballot paper in Batley and Spen. And many people who seem to want to punish Keir Starmer are turning to George Galloway. We have got a little clip of, a, of an interview with, with Owen Jones and him. Let's take a look at that. The very first thing I saw when I uh, came into Batley for this campaign was this flag. Mm -hmm. That's why this uh, cafe is a bit of a favorite of ours. Palestine is hegemonic in uh, at least a quarter of the constituency. And in a by-election, a quarter is a lot of people. Yeah, uh, and they're outraged by Labour's dramatic switch. I think there's a settled will here that Keir Starmer has to be punished for the turn away from Palestine that he's made. Owen Jones makes clear in the documentary there are many, many problems with George Galloway. I mean, he voted Conservative in the past election in Scotland. He's... I mean, he said some very obnoxious things. I mean, he's an opportunist, essentially. But there are many people in Batley and Spen who are looking to vote for him, including former Labour voters, Labour members, and even former Labour councillors. And from the interviews that Owen did, and I've also spoke to, to Aaron Bastani, who's been in the constituency, he's saying this is mainly because they want to punish Keir Starmer. I think the agency we have in this by-election is we can cause a defeat for Labour, which will lead to the weakening of Keir Starmer, because Keir Starmer has been very weak on the issues we care about, in particular Palestine, also um, Kashmir coming up quite a lot. Now, you might think that in response to this kind of disquiet among Muslim voters and um, you know, a disquiet which is likely going to cost them a seat, the Labour Party might be trying to, to love bomb Muslim voters to say, sorry, we, we don't take you for granted. We're really sorry if you got that impression. Um, actually, if you read our policies on Palestine, they're not terrible. I mean, they could be better, let's be honest. Um, but, you know, <laughs> they're not terrible. Um, you know, they might be trying to reassure people that, no, that they really do care and that their positions are, are ones which Muslims can, can vote for with pride. That's not what they're doing. They've gone down another route. Um, apparently, saying that Muslims don't vote for Labour because they're racist. Dan Hodges, one of Britain's most boneheaded columnists, wrote a piece in the Mail on Sunday to this effect. It was headlined, Who's spreading the poison that could put the final nail in Keir Starmer's coffin? Hodges suggests the poison that would put the final nail in Keir Starmer's coffin is that Keir Starmer has been too tough on anti-Semitism. Now, Dan Hodges finds someone who will furnish this argument. He gets a quote from a senior Labour official, um, and they say, 
We're hemorrhaging votes among Muslim voters, and the reason for that is what Kiir has been doing on anti-Semitism. Nobody really wants to talk about it, but that's the main factor. He challenged Corbyn on it, and there's been a backlash among certain sections of the community. So there you see, you've got all of these interviews of people saying this guy was not strong enough on Palestine, he's taking our votes for granted, and a senior Labour official tells Dan Hodges, you know, one of the most divisive columnists in the country, ah, oh, the problem is that Muslims don't like to see a party that's been tough on anti-Semitism. The implication there is essentially that Muslim voters are anti-Semitic, they're not voting for the Labour Party because they're racist. We've had conversations about these attitudes before, but I haven't seen it, you know, down on paper so explicitly as that quote in, in Dan Hodge's column on the weekend. I think that was always part of the implicit criticism of Corbyn, that his perceived proximity to Muslims and his alleged anti-Semitism were one and the same. And so you could use one to prove the existence of the other. And what that is a product of is, of course, a very Islamophobic perspective, a deeply racist uh, way of looking at the Muslim community and looking at the importance of the issue of Palestine to the Muslim community in this country and saying that is in itself anti-Semitic. All right. So it is an ideological position which pre-exists Jeremy Corbyn, and it's something which coalesced around him. Now, of course, it was bound to have a second life after Corbyn's uh, expulsion from the PLP. And so you have this strange vault fast where first it's anti-Semitic if you want to vote Labour, to now it's anti-Semitic if you don't want to vote Labour. And what both of these things are predicated on really is the delegitimization of Muslims having a voice or a champion or an advocate in national politics. And I think that while, of course, this is deeply racist, what I would be wary of is saying too much the other way, which is anti-Semitism has nothing to do with Muslims turning away from Starmer. Now, let me be very, very clear. This is not me saying, oh, and it's because Muslims hold anti-Semitic points of view. I think what it is to do with is the fact that if you're a Muslim and you've seen how the anti-Semitism crisis played out, which is a minority community, suddenly having a very powerful voice within the national media, their concerns are seen to be taken very seriously. And ultimately, that's got the power to reshape politics in a way which had the effect of marginalizing and excluding the left, you'll have Muslims going, well, hang on, why can't our community's concerns be like that? Why can't we be taken seriously? And so you do that not by, um, you know, unquestioning loyalty, but by exodus, by leaving, by saying we can take our votes elsewhere. Thank you very much. And that was something which I've been saying for months when it comes to Keir Starmer and BAME voters overall, which is the point of view of Labour has been to either, you know, marginalise or to distance or to act, quite frankly, embarrassed of the support that it has from black and Asian minority ethnic voters. And the gamble there is the same one which they used to have when it came to, you know, post-industrial towns in the North and the Midlands, which is, well, where else do they have to go? 
But the problem is, is that you'll have some canny operators like Galloway saying, well, here is the place you can go. And of course, people can always just stay at home. This is a, a, a crisis which emerges from Keir Starmer's strategy. It's an unforced error. And it comes from, I think, this very insulting view uh, that he and his leadership have of BAME voters. It does really show, I suppose, the risks of, I mean, weaponizing issues about racism in such a cynical way as they were in the Labour Party over the last five years. I mean, if you remember all of the people who said, how dare you talk about anti-Semitism and other forms of racism? Like, how was that going to make people who are mm. victims of other forms of racism feel? If you say, even mentioning the systemic abuse you face, that is itself like an offensive thing to do. How, how dare you mention Islamophobia. If you're told for five years that when you mention issues that affect you, you're guilty of whataboutism, then how are you supposed to feel included and like you have any respect and or, or, or that you are respected by the party that you are supposed to vote for? It just seems like I, I think this was always bound to happen. The other thing that I, I mean, you've, you, I, I've seen in sort of videos from from the constituency is people talking about Zionism. Now, you know, Keir Starmer's a Zionist or whatever. Now, I don't always think that Zionist is the most helpful sort of label to throw about because different people mean different things by it, whatever. But I do think that for all the leadership candidates to say in that JLM hustings, no, we are Zionists, you know, we, we support Zionism unconditionally, that was obviously going to have some consequences given while Zionism for some people means um, safety for for Jews. For other people, it means the dispossession of Palestinians. So if you just say without any qualification, I'm a Zionist, then obviously people are going to see you as taking one side in a conflict, in an occupation. They're going to respond badly to that because everyone can see what you say in every debate, right? So, so while they were saying that to reassure that JLM meeting, you've got all of these people who have solidarity with Palestine, who are seeing all of these people bending over backwards to make out that they're more Zionist than the person next to them. And of course, they're going to take that as a sign that you don't care or respect about the concerns that I have. And it's why they probably should have come up with a more sensitive answer to that question than all to just say, no, of course, we're Zionists. Everyone has to be a Zionist. Because for many people, well, for Palestinians, that means something very differently to what it means to Robert Peston, who was conducting that interview. And for many voters in Britain, it will mean something very different to, to what it means to, to Robert Peston, who was conducting that interview. I want to go very quickly to the evidence that is put forward by Dan Hodges. Now, I say evidence, um, I should put it in scare quotes, really. Um, so his evidence that it is anti-Semitism, which is driving this exodus from the Labour Party, is the following. So he writes, Galloway campaign staffers also claim members of the Muslim community have been expressing concern to them over the fact Starmer's wife is Jewish and that their children are being raised in the Jewish faith. Though again, they are unable to say who is circulating this information. Now, of course, if any voter is expressing concerns that someone's wife is Jewish and that their children, you know, that would be awful. That would be anti-Semitic and terrible. That shouldn't be pandered to. That should be opposed, dismissed. And if those people don't vote for Labour, so be it. This does seem like quite a flimsy basis for the argument, though. For a start, why would a Galloway campaign staffer say that, right? I mean, it would be quite a bizarre thing for them to say because it would make their campaign look worse. The other reason it's potentially not particularly persuasive is because Labour very recently had a Jewish leader. Ed Miliband was Jewish. Batley and Spen comfortably returned a Labour MP in 2015. So I think the idea that this is because Starmer is married to a Jewish person, 
I don't find it particularly convincing. Now, Ash, I don't know what you make of this. Obviously, you know, we're not in a position to dispute what Dan Hodges was told by a Galloway campaign staffer because it's unnamed. It's very difficult to check. But it just doesn't ring particularly true to me from the interviews I've seen in the constituency, from what I've heard from people who were talking to lots of people in the constituency. And as I say, the fact that Ed Miliband did not have this problem in 2015, that Dan Hodges is saying something here that stacks up. When it comes to people who believe cranky conspiracy theories, they often have no problem sharing them on camera. And you look at the pieces which have been done in Batley and Spen, from Owen Jones's documentary to the piece which I know that Aaron Bastani is coming out with very soon, that's not what people are saying. They're talking about Palestine, they're talking about Kashmir, and they're talking about local issues. They're talking about the fact that Batley and Spen has ensured some pretty horrific cuts, that it's seen that its magistrate's court shut down, its police station shut down, and all of this is under a Labour council. But the reason why this story is being told in this way has its basis in racism. Because when you see white voters deserting Labour, whether they're supporters of Brexit or any other reason, they're not told, well, you're racist, you can go. Even if maybe one of the reasons in which they're explicitly saying, I can't vote Labour anymore, is to do with something like immigration, all right? You don't get this narrative in the press of, well, you know, you can go, you're a racist, bye-bye. When it's Muslims who are also explicitly telling you something different, who are saying that it's on matters of foreign policy or local public service provision, still you've got this ability to monster them through the lens of anti-Semitism and people will believe it because of those pre-existing, you know, the racialized lens which affects Muslims in this country. And so I just think that it's, it's, it's a shoddy piece of journalism from Dan Hodges. If you're going to make an allegation which is that serious, you must be able to source it. You must be able to cite it and you must be able to prove it because the impact that it's having is bigger than any one by-election. It has an impact on the entirety of the Muslim community in this country who has their voice in politics being delegitimized by a columnist in a national newspaper. That's so important, like to say that, you know, the consequences of this article are really serious. And for you to, for you being Dan Hodges, to write this article, which is so divisive, which is so inflammatory on the basis of one Galloway staffer told me something, um, I'm not going to name them. And also they didn't provide me any evidence. I mean, it's disgusting, really, for there to have been a senior Labour source who then I suppose, backed up that article. It's, it's shocking. Now, I should say there were some people within the Labour Party who you know, condemned that. Annalisa Dodds did, as did Angela Rayner. Um, but, you know, I think there are many people in the country who 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 think that on issues like this, Labour have been incredibly non-committal. And so it's not particularly surprising that you have senior staffers who think it's, think it's acceptable to say things like this to Dan Hodges, to a Mail on Sunday journalist. Come on. You know the score. Please do go to navarromediate.com slash support and donate the equivalent of one hour's wage a month if you do so already. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Let's go straight on to our next story. The UK government may have abandoned plans for vaccine passports, but they are not ruling out the possibility of providing some extra freedoms to people who have been double vaxxed. That's having had both vaccinations. Now, there are two sets of rules up for debate here. So they are those concerning self-isolation. So self-isolation, if you've been in contact with someone with COVID-19, 
and travel, how easy it will be to go in and out of the country. Now, on the former, so on the issue of self-isolation, the suggestion is that as we go forward, those who have been double vaccinated will not need to go into self-isolation if they've been in contact with a positive COVID case, but instead take daily tests. Um, so you take a test every day and meanwhile you can go about your life as usual instead of being locked in your house. Now, Matt Hancock was asked about that proposal this morning. We can take a look at the answer. Isolation rules for those that double vaccinated. Well, we know that the vaccine is working. That's why it's so important that so many people are coming forward uh, to get it. And we're always looking at how we can replace the restrictions that we've had to have as a country with the protection that you get from the vaccine. In fact, that's the whole point of the vaccine is to protect life and to get us out of these restrictions. Now, we're not able to make any specific announcements on this today. It is something that we're working on and I very much hope we'll be able to make progress soon. Listening to that alone, you'd think probably they are going to change the rules about self-isolation. He's saying the whole benefit of these vaccines is that we don't have to have such harsh restrictions. If you've been double vaxxed, you won't have to self-isolate after you have been notified that you've been in contact with someone. As I said, the rules haven't changed. If you're notified that you've been in contact, you still have to self-isolate no matter how many vaccines you've had. Um, the proposal when it comes to travel is that people who are double vaxxed will not need to quarantine when returning from countries on the AMBER list. Again, instead, you'll be able to go about your normal life and just take a certain number of tests. Now, asked about that possibility, Boris Johnson was just as non-committal as Hancock in that previous clip. When it comes to travel, um, we'll certainly be looking at that. But I want to stress that this is going to be, whatever happens, a, a difficult year for, for travel. There will be hassle, there will be delays, I'm afraid, because the priority has got to be to keep the country safe and uh, to stop the virus coming back in. So no guarantees on an exemption from quarantine from travellers who are double jabbed? We're looking at it, but uh, I want to stress that the emphasis is going to be on making sure that we can uh, protect the country from the virus coming back in. Another one of those moments where Boris Johnson says something reasonable, but you wish he had been following that logic about three months ago when we left India off the red list and imported all of the Delta variant, which has delayed all of our exiting from, from lockdown. So slightly frustrating there. Anyway, sticking to the policy question at play right now, obviously this only makes sense to the extent to which being double vaccinated stops you catching the virus and passing it on. And we do have data. Um, so the most recent data from Public Health England on whether or not this is the case, it's somewhat mixed. So when it comes to the dominant Delta variant, um, the latest figures from PHE suggest two doses of the Pfizer vaccine is 88% effective against symptomatic disease. Two doses of AstraZeneca is 67% effective against symptomatic disease. So there's still a reasonable chance of catching COVID-19 and passing it on if, for example, you've been double vaxxed with AZ. That would be enough reason to get vaccinated. But we know it's more than 67% effective when it comes to hospitalizations. It's upwards of 90% effective when it comes to hospitalizations. So, so the vaccines are incredibly effective in that sense. But obviously, when it comes to these rule changes, the only thing that matters is transmission. So for me, I'm not sure if 67% is high enough. The risk of catching it and passing on COVID is of particular concern when it comes to travel due to the possibility of variants. Obviously, the last thing we want is a variant to come into the country that's even more transmissible than the one we've got and evades vaccines to some 
degree. Now, on that issue, Callum Semple, who is a member of SAGE, told Sky that what matters when it comes to travel is less the vaccination of or the vaccination status of the travellers and more the level of vaccination in any destination country. What matters is the level of vaccination in the country that people are travelling to because what we're concerned about is variants and it is more likely that new variants will develop in places with high levels of transmission. So it's not so much whether the traveller has been vaccinated, but whether the person in the country or whether the people in the country you were travelling to have been vaccinated. Emily Formbury, Labour's Shadow Trade Secretary, made a different argument to the same effect, this time on grounds of fairness. I have always said, I continue to say, we should be led by the science, we should be led by advice. Mm. And uh, I think there's something in us all moving at the same time. I mean, I'm lucky to have been second vaccinated, but I know that there's many people in their 20s who've made huge sacrifices who haven't yet. And we we should be working as one, one community on this. So being double vaccinated shouldn't afford people any extra privileges? I don't think so, not at the moment. I think we have to stick together. We've expected everybody to stick together. We've expected these youngsters to make all these sacrifices. I don't see why we should uh, we should now have a divided society. We need to work together. That's a pretty strong argument from Emily Formbury. She's saying even if there were epidemiological reasons to say it's less risky um, to allow people who have been double vaxxed to do what they want to do, given that there are large sections of society, myself included, who haven't had the chance to be double vaxxed yet, it would be fairly unfair if you say, you people who we haven't offered two vaccines yet, you have to quarantine, but people who were offered them back in January, you don't. Ash, I want to know your thoughts on this. If people are double vaxxed, should they get more freedoms than everyone else? Well, look, I'm double vaxxed, so get me back in the club, Michael. I don't care if I'm the only one in there. I do not care. Um, no, so look, I think that there are two separate issues, which I'm going to take one at a time. One is should double vax people uh, have different self-isolation rules where instead of staying at home for 10 days, they're able to daily test. I think that once you get to a stage where a sufficient amount of the population here is vaccinated, then yes go for it. Because I hear what you're saying um, about the, the lesser effectiveness of Pfizer and AstraZeneca against the Delta variant. But this is where I think the amount of the population that's been vaccinated here is so important, because it's a bit like driving within the speed limit, right? You're playing the percentages here. You driving within the speed limit, in this case, having a vaccine makes you quite a bit safer, but you're not entirely safe unless everyone else is doing it too. And that's how you end up with, um, you know, not having horrible crashes on the roads all the time. Right. So I think that, you know, and this is where I think Sage have been really good is sort of suggesting, well, what is the level of safe vaccination for us to have a lot more freedoms domestically? Um, I think that once you start looking at that 70% having had um, a single dose, then yes, I think you could have changed rules on self-isolation for double vaxxed people. I don't think that that is as much of a slap in the face, say, as uh, double vaxxed people overall being able to participate in more travel or leisure activities. So when it comes to foreign travel, I do think that that's a question of fairness because you have this huge uh, divergence, uh, both geographically and by age, in terms of who has had the opportunity to get both vaccines. So if you've got different rules on the basis of, you know, who's had both their vaccines and that dictates whether or not you can go on holiday, yeah, that would smart a hell of a lot, even if you're not part of the cool gang like me who's had both of them. 
Mm. I mean, also, if it's perceived as unfair, people just won't follow it, right? So mm. given that these are, you know, both self-isolation, if you've been contacted by test and trace, and self-isolation after returning to the country from traveling, both of those, I mean, unless you're a country on the red list and you're going to hotel quarantine, are essentially based on trust. I mean, I have heard of, you know, people coming and knocking on people's homes. But in general, it's quite easy to evade those rules. So I would imagine if you've got the government saying, look, if you're a boomer and you've been double vaxxed, you don't have to self-isolate. But if you're under 30 and you haven't had the chance to be double vaxxed, you have to self-isolate at home. People will just break those rules because they'll perceive them as unfair. So I doubt that these rules would come into place before a point at which they say all adults have now had the chance to be double vaccinated, which I would imagine is probably mid-September. So this could come in then. I mean, if it did, and if we could do that safely, that would be wonderful because obviously the less we have to stay in our homes, the better. Um, we have ended on time today for once. Ash, thank you as ever for joining me on this Monday night. And thank you everyone for your super chats and your comments tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. So make sure to hit subscribe. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.